0: You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you, Triune God, that you love us and that you reveal yourself to us in and through your Word. And we thank you that your word reveals your son, Jesus, to us in all his grace. So we pray now that as we turn to the reading and preaching of your word, that you would illumine it with the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be those who don't just listen and walk away, but that we would respond to your word of grace with obedience and with love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Who's seated? Good morning, church family. It's good to see you. Welcome to all of y'all. Corey, I'm the lead pastor here, and welcome to those of you who maybe are new or visiting or those of you online, we're really grateful that you're here. We're in a sermon series that we're winding up, actually just winding up next week. Um, this, we've been in it this whole summer. It's called Taste and See. It's been a wonderful series where we've traced this theme, um, and, and you maybe didn't know this, that a huge theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is feasting, meals, eating, Uh, And that this runs as this enormous theme in which God is inviting us to learn about the way that he nurtures and provides for us, his people. And through these stories, God's inviting us not just to know that he's good, but to literally like taste and see, experience his goodness as he invites us to sit at the table with him. So um, last week, we looked at the wonderful story of the resurrected Jesus feeding breakfast uh, to one of his friends. And this morning we're looking at a really cool story about the way that eating became a mark of the early New Testament church as they began to um, meet together and live life together through the risen Jesus. So we're gonna hear um, Jason and Katie Snook read uh, from Acts 2. So if you wanna open your Bibles or open an app on your phone to Acts 2, um, that's what we'll be parking today, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. So let's hear God's word. Acts 2. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My wife Sarah's maternal grandmother was named Maureen de Mumbrian, but everybody just called her Mama. And Mama was this, big-hearted, beautiful, generous person who was hilarious. She had all these funny sayings that she would say all the time. Things like, I wouldn't trade you for a million dollars and I wouldn't pay a nickel for another just like you. I mean, just things were like, (laughs) thank you? uh, (laughs) um, uh, Mama lived for decades, really her whole life, raised her kids in West Tennessee in a tiny little town called Jackson. And... There in Jackson, she had a one-story rancher, and at the heart of that home was a big spacious kitchen, and at the heart of that kitchen was a golden-colored pedestal oak table. Mama was a consummate, generous host, and that table was her chief tool of generosity. Nearly every family meal was eaten around that table, but it was a place of welcome for many. Um, After church, people would just show up and Mama would have an overabundance of barbecue and mac and cheese and overboiled green beans, ready to serve. Uh, The neighbor kids would just happen to show up around supper time and Mama would just say, Jane, why don't you just pull up a chair and stay for supper? In segregated West Tennessee, Mama was a rare person who gathered white folk and black folk together around her table. At that table, Thousands of meals were eaten, and prayers were prayed, and glasses of iced tea was served, and tears were shed, and relationships were forged. That table became a holy vessel of welcome, hospitality, and joy. I don't know what you think about when you think about the early church. You think about the New Testament church. What images come to your mind? You know, maybe the The signs and the wonders and the healings or the the tongues and the preaching and the conversions. I mean, all of those things are remarkable qualities of that early New Testament church. But there's one thing, one very essential mark of that New Testament church that we don't think about and talk about very much, but was clearly described continuously as a mark of their life together. And that mark was eating, eating together. They were always eating, always gathered around a common table, always sharing life together around a meal. This scripture that you heard read this morning is one of the earliest descriptions of the young New Testament church. This is a really famous passage. Sometimes it's called the marks of the church, the four marks of the New Testament church. Um, Just throw them up on the screen for you, sort of iterate it out. The first first says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were a learning church, a preaching and teaching church. Church. Their Bible, of course, was just the Old Testament, which they studied, but it also was the teachings of the apostles, which have become for us the New Testament. So they were a preaching, teaching, and learning community. Second, it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That word is the Greek word koinonia, which just means common life. They shared in common life together, sharing everything as anyone had need, it says. Third, it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, commentators are divided about whether that is talking about the celebration of the, supper, the Lord's Supper or communion, or whether it's just talking about common meals together. The answer is probably both because it doesn't seem like that the early church had much of a separation between the Lord's Supper and dinner time. But either way, eating together was a central part of their common life. And then the fourth thing, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. That's kind of a shorthand for the worship of God. They did that both formally in the temple because they were still Jewish and they would return to the temple and worship God through the singing of the Psalms, but also they prayed informally in their homes. So these were the four things, the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Now, it's notable, I think, as I was thinking about this week, that as you think about the characteristics of the modern Western church today, and especially, let's just pick on Presbyterians for a little bit. You think about the Presbyterian church for a moment, the two marks that we tend to emphasize above all others are number one and number four, the the preaching of God's word and the worship of God, right? Those are two, in fact, we might even say those are the primary marks of the church and those other two, the fellowship and the breaking of the bread, yeah, okay, they're important, but secondary and maybe even expendable. But what's so fascinating about what Luke does is in this short description of the early church, it is not number one and number four that he elaborates on, it is number two in, Number three, verses 44 through 47 are a deeper examination, not of the preaching and the prayer, but of the fellowship and the eating rituals of that early community, at least in Luke's mind. Yeah, you can't be a church without the preaching and the prayers, but you definitely can't be a church without a shared common life and eating together around the table. That's how central it was. In fact, look at verse 46 again. They broke bread in their homes, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Well, this is not a throwaway detail in the text. Luke wants us to know that eating was a fundamental part of their life together. One commentator writes this, the whole New Testament witness demonstrates how thoroughly the meal, the meal became. The focal practice in the early church for participating in Jesus's work of salvation. I'll put it strongly, without eating together, without the meal on the common table, the church simply cannot be the church. Do you believe that? This is hard for us to practice today. I mean, modern life does not accommodate this practice very well, the practice of eating together a lot. I mean, it, it, it's hard enough just to gather your own nuclear family around the table, let alone eating with other people in your broader spiritual family, right? There's a lot of forces working against us. In our fast paced lives, food gets in the way. So we have adapted to keep up the pace, not to slow down and engage in the messy, inefficient and sometimes expensive practice of common meals. So we eat breakfast on the go and we eat lunch at our desks and we grab some takeout on the way home for dinner. We're like machines, right? Just keep going, keep working. If you just fuel up, you'll be fine. That doesn't work for the church. And it doesn't work for relationships. And frankly, it doesn't work for life because we are not machines. We are humans, persons, whole persons made for relationship. And the church is not a machine. We're a body and a body needs to be fed. And so I wanna make the case today, my dear brothers and sisters, I wanna try in this post-COVID world to call us, back or into what I wanna call a culture of the table. That we would be a people who practice the culture of the table. Because the table, and I mean your literal kitchen or dining room table, the table is one of the most powerful tools that we have to live out the gospel in our lives. It is one of the most countercultural actions we could do to restore the practice of shared meals slowing down, eating together, gathering for food around the table. The table, just like it was for mama, can become a community-shaping, world-changing vessel. So why was the table, why was common meals, why were common meals so important to that early church? And why why, why do they need to be an important part of our life together today? Let's just look at that together. First of all, eating together displays the hospitality of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if someone ever came to you, what's the Bible all about? Kids, I wonder what you'd say. What do you think the Bible's all about? There's a lot of ways you could answer that question. But one of the ways you could answer that question is, it's about the hospitality of God. It's about the hospitality of God. The whole Bible begins with an act of hospitality. God creates a beautiful world and he makes a home for his people to dwell in. And it is a beautiful, this is no McMansion. You know, this is a beautiful, gorgeous, creative garden full of tastes and sounds and smells. He just creates this gorgeous home and invites us in. Of course, the story quickly takes a tragic turn. We spit in the face of our host and choose exilic homelessness rather than to dwell in the house of God. But God does not give up. The whole story of the Bible, like, Brooke said earlier in the service, is of, of that father God waiting on the porch, yearning for his children to come back home again. The whole story of the Bible is of God seeking us out, drawing us back, and the gospel of Jesus is the culmination of that story. In fact, Paul describes the gospel like this in Ephesians 2. He says, for through Christ, we have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, Strangers, outsiders, exiles, but now you're members of his household. Grace is God's hospitality for sinners. That's what grace is. God throws open the doors of his home and he says, Come on in. Here's a glass of sweet tea. Sit at my table. Sit on my couch. Here's the remote. This is your place. This is your forever home. At the heart of the gospel is the hospitality of God. So, because of that, it's no surprise that the early church was constantly engaging in hospitality with each other. God intends his church to be a conduit of God's hospitality for the world. And so we see verses like this in the New Testament, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you, Romans 15, seven. First Peter four, show hospitality to one another. Please do it without complaining. Your carpet's gonna get muddy. Just do it anyway, Peter is saying. One early Christian writer wrote that hospitality is the greatest spiritual discipline we could ever practice even more than prayer and fasting because at the heart of of hospitality is the message of the gospel. God welcomes sinners. Now, this may sound intimidating to some of you that I'm challenging you to begin to commit to a practice of hospitality in your own home, at your own table. Maybe the thought of opening your home and inviting people in makes you nervous, or maybe you think my home is too messy, or it's too small, or there's too many little people running around, or there's yogurt definitely curdling in the fridge, or there's, I know my PJs are on the floor in the powder room, whatever you might be thinking. I don't know. How can I invite anybody into that? My, 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 my home's just, my life is too messy. I think one of our barriers is that, unfortunately, hospitality has become almost like a performance art in our time. Um, The magazine Southern Living has a column called Southern Hospitality, and if you just get on the column and you scan it, you'll see um, how to set the perfect table, how to use your special china and crystal, where to put the little fork, make sure you have some nice background sounds like running water and birds, and always remember that there is indeed a proper way to split a biscuit. All all this could make you never want to have anybody in your home because you need to be the perfect host and the perfect cook and the perfect family and the perfect person, right? But that's not hospitality. That's entertaining. And there's a big difference. I love what Tim Chester, the British author, says. He says, the focus of entertaining is impressing others. The focus of true hospitality is serving others. Of course, there is a time and place for serving an amazing meal, right? Um, but the heart of hospitality is inviting people to your table to serve them, to love them, and to give them a taste of the heart of God who welcomes them. So so I just want to apply this. What could this look like in your life, third family, for you to take a, the next step in God's calling to foster a culture of hospitality in your own home, at your own table? You know, let us just be honest. Many of us... Um, Closed down our homes during the pandemic. Stopped inviting people in. And rightly so, we were supposed to, right? But I gotta be honest, I think a lot of us haven't ever opened them back up again. Our homes became fortresses of isolation with our own people, our own nuclear family. And many of us have not received the call to, or not follow, followed the call to open our homes back, open up again to others. Hospitality is not something that we're called to do every once in a while on holidays. For the Christian, it is a way of life, a posture of openness towards others all the time. And so let's just start small. Just ask yourself, what's your next step in this commitment to hospitality? Maybe it could be, maybe we're giving you an easy next step. You could just show up to one of these parish picnics. Just show up and receive the hospitality of your host. That's one thing you could do. Another thing, I know, busy. I understand what it's like to have a really busy families here, and I have four girls, and unfortunately, they all like very different things, and so I'm just, sometimes I feel like a professional Uber driver. I'm just sort of driving everywhere, um, and it can be really hard even to have a simple family meal, so maybe for some of us young, busy families like ours, the commitment is to examine the calendar and see what needs to be removed, what you need to stop in order to prioritize at least having one or two family dinners a week. That's just a simple priority, a simple step you could take. Maybe as the weather gets a little cooler, you could commit to spending more time outside in the front yard instead of your back deck as a way to actually begin to get to know the names and faces of your neighbors. Maybe it could mean just cooking, you know, Kim and Parker Garrett have done this for years. They cook a big old pot of something, and at church they come to the 11 o'clock service and they just look for somebody to invite over. Just an easy way to invite them over right, right after right after worship. So what are you gonna do by committing to hospitality? We commit to what the gospel is all about, God's welcoming grace. The second reason why I think meals were so important to the New Testament church and must be important for us is that eating together displays the barrier-breaking power of the gospel. In the ancient world, meals were an important way to maintain order in the social hierarchy. So who you ate with communicated what caste or tribe you were a part of. And by the more important people you could have at your table, the more you secured for yourself a place of elite status. Do you get what I'm saying? So this is one of the reasons why Jesus was so scandalous because of the, who the people were that Jesus chose to have table fellowship with, right? If you look at carefully at Jesus, the majority of his controversies with the religious elite came around the table. One commentator says that in almost every chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, eating a meal, or coming from a meal. He ate so much that his critics called him a glutton and a drunkard. And he ate with the wrong people, right? He ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and notorious sinners, the people that the religious establishment had rejected his grace was extending to all the wrong people because for Jesus, the table, the meal was a powerful way of communicating that he, God's grace was breaking down human barriers and was creating a new community, not based on class or rules or status or race, but on his grace and his grace alone. So it's not surprising, is it, that when the early church of Jesus is birthed, they begin to behave just like their Lord they begin to doing the same things that Jesus did with their meals. So in Acts 2, if you go back and read earlier in the chapter, it's the famous episode of Pentecost. It just happened to be a Jewish festival where people from every known country at the time were gathered in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit drops. They're given this ability to speak in tongues, to share the good news of Jesus to people in their own language. 3,000 people are converted and to come to Jesus. And so immediately in one day, the early church in Jerusalem has become the most diverse social community on the planet. What are you gonna do when you've got people from different cultures and different backgrounds, different ways of communicating? How do you bring together and foster unity in a community as diverse as that? Well, I'll tell you what they did. They started sharing the table. They started eating together. Just like their Lord, they gathered people around the table that never would normally have shared a meal, but now through the grace of Jesus, were part of the same spiritual family. Many of the early controversies in the church were around food and who was allowed to sit at the table. So in Acts 10, God uses a meal to show Peter that Jesus was now calling him to share the table with those dirty, rotten Gentiles that he once Despised. He brought down a feast of pork barbecue and chitlins and said, man, you got to violate all your Jewish upbringing and eat this with those Gentiles now. And then later in Galatians 2, he was doing it again, separating himself at mealtime from the Gentiles and, God, and Paul has to call him back to the gospel and call him back to the literal table. So you see who we eat together and who is at the table with us, is one of the most powerful ways that we can demonstrate the barrier-breaking Power of the gospel. So how can we use our tables? And I mean our literal tables. How can we use them to demonstrate this power of the gospel? Well, first of all, we can use our tables for our church to foster unity and love in our church family. I'm talking about our inside our church family. We can use our tables to foster unity across difference. Let me, let me just speak frankly with you because I love you. You know, the last couple of years, all the researchers, Barna and others, are saying that we are living in the most polarized moment in our society in over 30 years, and it's it's, it's get, getting to a place of of just um, heartbreaking sadness to see how polarized our society is. And let's just be honest: the last few years, we've allowed some of those political and social divisions. Divide us in the church as well, and um, that's what the devil wants. That the devil delights in seeing the things that divide the people in the world would divide his people in the church, and not only that, but we have a, a, a larger church, and so as a result, the larger a church is, the easier it is to just hang with the people that you like and that you know. Um, I don't mean to like call the long timers out or anything, but a lot of you who've been around here for a couple of decades have been saying to me recently, gosh, when I come to church now, I look around and I don't recognize anybody. Like there's all these new people and I don't recognize anybody. And you know, that's a really wonderful thing. But I I, I also recognize that it can be a hard thing when the community that you have known and loved begins to change. I just want to challenge you. The temptation is to close in and to just be those with you like that you feel like that you connect with on a temperamental or even worldview level. And I just want to challenge you to open your home and your table. If you're older, go after somebody younger. If you're younger, go after somebody older. If you're you're married, go after the single people. If you're single, reach out to a married person or a family. Go after somebody that you know is of a different political persuasion than you. Go after somebody of a different culture or background. You know, our partnership with Easton Fellowship and the Christian Arabic Church, gives us immediate connection with brothers and sisters all over our city who have profoundly different cultural and racial backgrounds than you do. See what happens when you open your home and set your table for people that are different than you in our own community, because it will powerfully demonstrate that our unity in Christ is greater than anything that can ever separate us. Not only that, we can use our tables to break barriers to those outside the church as well. You know, Eugene Peterson says that the primary venue for evangelism in Jesus's life was the meal. That's where Jesus met those that were outside and he invited them in. We see in verse 46, immediately after the description of eating together in their homes, it says in verse 47, the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. The table, the meal was the principal tool of evangelism, of sharing the good news of Jesus with those who needed it. Hospitality is literally the Greek word Philozenia, And you might recognize the word xenia, xenophobia. Xenophobia is the fear of the outsider, the fear of the stranger, the fear of the alien, the fear of the excluded. But hospitality is the wonderful word xenophilia, which is the love of the outsider, the love of the stranger, the love of the one on the outside. So how could we become a community who raises eyebrows because of the people that you invite to your table? I just dare you. See if you can raise eyebrows. Who is that stranger? Who is that outsider for you? Maybe it's someone of another religion or another race. Maybe it's someone from the LGBTQ community. Maybe it's a very difficult neighbor or a very difficult colleague that you frankly, you don't want to eat with. Maybe it's someone, a friend who is just so wounded. Who is the person that God has put in your life that he wants to invite into his home? And could your table, become a holy altar where Jesus sits as the host, extending his grace to those that he loves. So eating together displays the hospitality of God, displays the barrier breaking power of the gospel. And finally eating together embodies the sacrificial love of Christ. As Luke describes the life of the young church in Acts 2, he describes not just eating, but sacrificial living, selling property liquidating assets for those in need, opening their homes to the muddy sandaled feet of their friends, right? Giving up precious bits of food to enjoy the life of community, even in poverty. It was a community that didn't just eat, they're eating embodied joyful sacrifice. And if you've ever made made a good meal for friends or family, you know that it always involves sacrifice. It costs money to buy ingredients and, and food, Uh, It costs time to plan and to shop and to prep and to cook and to cut and to shred and to saute and to simmer and then to set and to serve and then to wash up and then to find Tupperware containers with tops to fit and get that all back in the fridge again, you know? And even beyond your own personal sacrifice, it involves a sacrifice of others. Unless you are a farmer or a gardener, almost everything we serve at our tables is the fruit of the sacrificial work of others. Everything served had to be planted and harvested and hauled and delivered, and even the life of the chicken, or the cow, or the fish, or the carrot, or the cucumber that you consume is offering its life for the benefit of yours. The heart of all nourishment is sacrifice. So it is no surprise that Jesus chose, of all things, a meal, the broken bread, the poured out wine, as the sacrament of his own love for us, which is most perfectly encapsulated in sacrifice. Jesus died that we might have life. Jesus offered his whole self to take away the sin of the world. And every time we come to the communion table, and I hope you never miss a first Sunday of the month when Jesus meets us here at this table. Every time we come, we come to a common table that Jesus has set for us by giving us his own life. We live from the life he gave. So now as followers of Jesus, every time we gather for a meal, no matter how simple we do, so reenacting the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. I love this quote from, again, from Eugene Peterson. He says, we take the meal with as much gospel seriousness as we take our scriptures. We take the kitchen to be as essential in the work of salvation as the sanctuary. Meals are frontline strategies countering the inexorable destruction of hospitality that is running amok in the Western world today. The meal is a focal practice for reenacting in our dailiness all that is involved in the Eucharistic meal in which we participate in the sacrifice of Christ for the salvation of the world. You know, y'all, isn't it so amazing that one of the most common actions of our lives, eating, God has given us the opportunity to reflect the most profound of all sacrifices, life given for life. Our tables can become altars where even the simplest meal, we embody the sacrificial love of Christ. Our kitchens can become sanctuaries where we express our salvation as we bless, give, and offer ourselves and what we have up for others. Any sacrifice you make in the money you spend, the time you take, the inconvenience you accept, the mess created, all are done as a sign of the sacrifice that Jesus made in giving his own life. So this is my last question to you, my dear family. What would it mean for you to joyfully embrace the cost of living the culture of the table? To joyfully embrace the cost. One thing it could mean, and I'm just gonna make a shameless plug here, it could just mean opening your home for a parish group or for a, a, a discipleship group. We need homes because the life of the church is lived out, not in the building, but in homes. And guess what? We're leaving our building in a few months. I'm gonna spend 18 months in the mall. You can hear more about that later. So we're gonna need homes, your homes, to live out the life of the community together. So maybe you need to respond to God's call. Talk to Elizabeth Hayes, there she is. Maybe, (laughs) Maybe embracing this commitment means preparing one meal a week for another person and seeing the time and the money and the effort that you spent as an offering up to the Lord. And I do recognize that maybe some of you are young parents or single parents who cannot host anyone and all you can do is barely get food on the table for your own kids. And I just want to say, that's okay. This is the season you're in. And why don't you just see even that act of putting food on the table for your children as a holy act of participating in the sacrificial love of Jesus? The tables in our home become extensions of the table of our Lord as we offer ourselves to others, as Jesus offered himself to us. So let me close. At the heart of the church's life is the table. This table, our tables. The table we taste the hospitality of God, the table we display the barrier breaking power of the gospel and there we experience the sacrificial love of Christ. Sarah and I are so grateful that Mama's table is now our table. There it is, a picture of it. It sits in our kitchen, and every day it is a reminder for us to aspire to be like her in its use. That it would be a place of welcome and of sharing and of giving and receiving, a place of hospitality and unconditional welcome, a place that breaks social barriers, a place where we taste the sacrificial love of Christ. So as you sit at your table, as you prepare a meal or receive a meal from others, as you sit down to eat, as you pause to pray and welcome Jesus as the host. May God open our eyes to see the holy altar that is our table. And may he foster in us a culture of the table that joyfully, sacrificially extends the grace of Jesus to all. Let's pray. just wanna invite you to, Consider what one step are you going to take to respond to God's invitation. What's one thing that you will do this week to practice the culture of the table? Lord Jesus, you are a generous host. And you have invited us in by your grace that we might be a part of the household of God forever. Help us to be those who every day come to the table to receive your nourishment. And help us to be those who set the table for others, that they might know your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.